Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin Rice, and I want to share what I've learned in aviation both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. As is quite evident from the title, today I'm, I'm going to talk about how we pilots log flight time. I want to create a, an informative episode for the soon-to-be pilots or, or the current pilots who are, are looking to move on from general aviation. And the purpose is to pass along some key information that I didn't really know about until after I actually started flight instructing. And, and so if, you, if you're looking to become an airline pilot, it might be good to get a, a better grasp of the regulations regarding the blogging of flight time. And, and for my non-pilot listeners, this might be a little bit dry, especially when I, I start talking about some of these regulations, but who knows? I mean, maybe this will be interesting. Uh, at least that's the goal uh, of this episode. So to start off, uh, how do we log flight time in general aviation piston aircraft? Every plane has at least a tack which is used to determine the time put on the airframe and, and the engine. Unlike a car that is measured by the miles it is driven, a plane uses the hours that it's operated, you know, with the engine running, to the tenth of an hour. And the reason we don't use miles is because, well, how would you measure that <laughs> to begin with? Uh, but most importantly, is the wear and tear is, is more relative to the time that the engine and airframe are spent in the air or, or operating. How much distance we travel over the ground is, is completely irrelevant, given that with winds aloft, the, your mileage can vary, uh, versus with a car, you know, it's, it's pretty fixed being on pavement. So with a tack, we can get an idea of how much time the airplane has been flying. If the plane only has a tack, that's what you'll use to log your flight time. And that's what flight schools would use to bill you if, if they only had that tack. Uh, and, and of course, if the flight school only bills you by the hour. Some flight schools are, are a little different. It might charge you uh, in blocks of time, which I don't really agree with because you might get overcharged for a lesson that only uses the plane for a shorter time frame. Uh, I'll, I'll get into a little bit more about the flight schools in a minute. But anyway, some planes and, and most of them nowadays will also have what's called a Hobbs meter. When the Hobbs meter starts ticking will depend on the aircraft. I've heard that some will start as soon as the battery is turned on, uh, but most will start ticking once the engine is started. And so that's the case. If that's the case, then why would we have a tack? Well, the tack in this situation of, of an aircraft also having a Hobbs meter, uh, the, the tack will measure the time put on the airframe uh, and the engine. Uh, specifically the engine, but we'll, we'll use it for the airframe as well, as a factor of, of how fast uh, the engine is turning. So in other words, it's, it's fairly common knowledge that the faster the RPMs, which is the, the revolutions per minute of an engine, the more wear and tear it's going to have on that engine. So by using a ratio of the, those revolutions per minute to the time spent at higher RPMs, you can actually just create a formula where when you're at a higher RPM, the tack will be a one-to-one -one ratio in terms of time that that tack is ticking and, and actual time. But when the engine is idling or it's at a, a lower RPM setting, the tack will run slightly slower than real time. And so that's why in those certain aircraft that have both a Hobbs and a tack, when you are done with a flight, the tack will never be greater than the Hobbs. And in most cases, the tack will be, you know, depending on the duration of the flight, about 0.5, you know, half an hour less than the hops. And, and again, that can really vary on each flight. If you have a longer flight where you're spending a lot of time doing some maneuvers with the engine idling, you know, you might see a, an increase in a, dist, a difference rather between the, the hops and the tack. Uh, but if it's a, a quick flight where you don't spend that much time at a lower RPM setting, your hops and tack might match up uh, and be almost the same. But this is just an example of how things worked with the Cessnas that I was flying. Uh, but each aircraft can be a little bit different. Uh, I think for the most part, flight schools use the Hobbs to build their students. And the time that you spend with your instructor will be added on top of that. So for example, the, the wet rate, uh, which means the, the, the cost of the aircraft uh, with a fuel surcharge per hour, uh, for example, it, it could be $180 an hour in, in a Cessna. The instructor uh, and or the, the, the flight school will charge, let's say, I don't know, $60 per hour for the instructor rate. 
So the plane plus the instructor in this example would be $240 per hour. But then there's also a, a pre-flight and, and a post-flight debrief with the instructor. So let's say that for, uh, I don't know, maybe you fly two hours in the plane with the instructor. That would be two times the $240. That would equal $480. But then let's say you add half an hour. So 30 minutes of pre-flight and, and post-flight debrief with the instructor. And so that's, that's half an hour at the $60 per hour rate giving you $30. So then you'll have your $480 for the two hours with an instructor and, and, and the fuel plus $30 gives you $510 for that entire lesson equaling two and a half hours, two hours of which were in the plane. Uh, so that, that's a lot of money, not cheap, I know. Uh, but that, that kind of puts into perspective you know, how expensive flight training is. Uh, and I'm just throwing that in there uh, for you to understand and, and what to expect from a flight school or, or even just a private instructor, uh, how they might break down the charges for each lesson. And I, I would exercise extreme caution when looking into a flight school that has a full upfront payment for a, a rating or, or maybe they charge you in time blocks instead of referencing the aircraft time. For a, a full upfront payment, that's really risky in the event that something happens to you. You know, maybe you, you have to uh, delay your flight training or maybe it just won't work out for you. But are you really going to get your money back? Mm, maybe not. And, you know, maybe you, you want to change flight schools or, or you need to move for family reasons or, or maybe the flight school goes completely bankrupt. I mean, good luck getting your money back in those full upfront payment type of situations. And if it's a school that charges in, in blocks of time, like lesson blocks, instead of referencing the, the time spent in the aircraft with the instructor, I, I've just heard of, of sad stories where people are unfortunately getting ripped off for their money. Uh, you know, maybe the plane you're supposed to fly is down for maintenance or the weather isn't good. And, you know, hopefully the instructor has a backup plan for another ground lesson. But if they don't, I, I have heard that you can still get charged for the lesson just because it was scheduled. And that's some of that fine print that you'll see in all the terms and conditions. So the, the moral of the story is, is read that fine print, you know, figure out how a flight school and or the, the instructors will charge you for a lesson. I mean, flight training is not cheap by any means, and I would just hate to see someone turned away from a dream career in aviation because of a bad experience at a flight school. So do your research. So once you've found the, the plane that you're going to learn on, you know, you found the good flight school, you know, how does logging flight time work? Well, for the, the first flight, which is often referred to as your discovery flight, you'll you should definitely bring a, a logbook with you uh, so definitely purchase one of those before you start your flight training you can find them online from various vendors uh, or if you go to a pilot store um, it, right now i don't know what the price of them are these days uh, probably 20 30 maybe 40 bucks but when you think about it it's it's not it's not that expensive because after you make that first entry and and to put it in comparison to the rest of the cost of flight training but uh, after you make that first entry it becomes priceless because that becomes the official record of all of your flight experience until you fill out your first 8710 form for the FAA to get your private pilot certificate. Uh, so there, there's no other records. You know, it's the only, the only record uh, with all your instructors' uh, signatures and and you know at the end of course when when the checkride examiner uh goes through and, and signs you off i mean those endorsements that you have the sign offs that's the only official log of your flight training and so that that's all in that logbook so you know if, if it gets stolen or, or damaged beyond repair you're going to be out of luck uh there i have heard of a couple stories of, of people essentially having to re-log some flight time uh, now, granted, you know, since they had already done it, it was pretty easy and they could do it pretty quickly. But, you know, for example, the private pilot course, you need 40 hours of flight time. So if you were all ready to go, but all of a sudden your logs were lost or something and you had no backups, I mean, that's tough. you got to do another 40 hours of flight training. So your logbook becomes really important to keep track of and to always keep with you at all times and, and don't just leave it lying around. But since we're in the 21st century, uh, one of my recommendations I make is that you know, since we're in such a digital age, have an electronic version of your logbook too. ForeFlight has their own that, that's included when you purchase. I think you need at least the Basic Plus edition, and, and this is what I have. 
uh, and I absolutely love it. Um, granted, I'm a little biased towards it because that's what I've had for years, uh, but it, it's it's excellent. It keeps really great records and keeps track of all your currency too. So you don't have to go back and figure out, okay, the past 90 days, how many landings have I had? It keeps track of it for you. Uh, Log10 Pro is, is another company I've heard of that also does the uh, electronic version of a logbook. And I think they actually... I don't know if they've changed it, but I think they have a free version where you can use it, essentially a trial run, up to 250 hours of, of flight time. Uh, again, I don't know if that's still going on, but as of a couple years ago, that's uh, that was something you could do to, to essentially try it out. Or, you know, another option is just to simply use a spreadsheet to keep track of all your records. Uh, in, in my opinion, unless you're a whiz wheel with spreadsheets, that, that's probably going to be the most complicated way of, of logging things electronically. But it is free to use if you're using something that you already have. Uh, for the ForeFlight option, uh, again, like I said, I'm a little bit biased towards it, uh, but that's what I use and I, I really like it. And I think the version I have is, I want to say $100 per year, but I think it's totally worth it. I mean, it, it not only has your logbooks, but it also houses all of your charts and documents uh, and things you might need, and including checklists and uh, chart supplements and all kinds of documents that'll be really handy, not only for your flight training, but once you're just flying recreationally or, or maybe you end up flying for a company someday that, that happens to use ForeFlight or it's kind of on your own uh, with whatever sources you use. I mean, ForeFlight is just a great tool. It's also a great app because you can load it on both your iPad and your iPhone. Uh, so for redundancy purposes, and so you know if if something happened to your iPad, you, you still have all your your uh, your stuff on your iPhone as well. Now I am referencing iPad and iPhone. Unfortunately, ForeFlight is only for the Apple products, uh, which I <laughs> I ran the Samsung Galaxy uh, phones for quite a while, and I made the switch to iPhone only because I was using uh, an iPad as well for for ForeFlight, and then. Uh, I don't know, just the rest of the family having an iPhone, I'd join the darn cult. <laughs> uh, so if you are an Android user and, and you prefer Samsung tablets and, and phones, you're you're going to be out of luck for ForeFlight, unfortunately. Uh, but I believe Log10 Pro has has the application across platforms. So yeah, it's up to you. you know, if you, if you want to stick uh, with whatever Android platform you're on, ForeFlight, unfortunately, is not going to work for you. I don't see them... Uh, making a change to, to also be uh, to, to have a platform for, for Android too. Unfortunately, I, I think they struck a deal with Apple and they're going to stick with that. So that's just the way it goes. Uh, or you can be like me and make the change and join the darn Apple cult <laughs> in order to have ForeFlight both on your phone and your iPad. Regardless of the, the digital log that you use, I also recommend that from day one of your flight training, have your instructors always sign off the digital and physical copies of your logbook because the the logs of, of receiving instruction time in the aircraft like i said earlier it's only official once it's signed by an instructor so later when uh when well first of all for for completing your your private pilot course for example you know that those records are going to be necessary for the check airman to look over and to make sure that you've completed everything but also down the road when you if you're looking to go to the airlines when uh, they, they want to bring you in for an interview, most of them will say you know, only bring paper logbooks unless you have all of the official signatures and endorsements digitally. Uh, and this, this is just to keep things professional and presentable. And, and so I, I really recommend having a digital logbook in tandem with the, the paper logs. And I, I, still, I still like paper because it, it has this nostalgic feeling of, of almost uh, it's like a memoir kind of uh and, and when i'm maybe old and, and a crusty grandpa i can look back on all the flights and uh th that i took all over the place and i can relive some of those memories and, and then share them as well but it's just it's it's a good way to to keep both those records uh you know in, in case something did happen to your your physical physical logbooks unfortunately i did not start uh with the digital log at the same time as, as my paper log. So my digital log started, I think I was probably 200, 300 hours in before I started putting in some digital logs. So I still have to keep my paper logs for the official documents that, that note all of the 
the requirements from the beginning of my training. Now I, I've had multiple check rides and multiple of those 8710 forms filled out. So in terms of, of my actual flight records, my hours rather, uh, the, the FAA has records of that. So if something were to happen to all my logbooks, it's not exactly the end of the world, but I don't want to lose them. Because uh, again, they are, they are a memoir and they're really priceless. They're, they're, they're great to have. Uh, but I, I would, again, just to recap, I would, I would really recommend that you start logging from the beginning, that first discovery flight, that first time you get that dual receive time with an instructor, have the, the instructor fill out the digital log and the paper log. Uh, when I started instructing, I, I had a few students that I, I encouraged we should do this, and, and uh, so right from the get-go, from flight one, day one, that first lesson, I made sure to fill out both those logbooks to include all of their endorsements too. Because again, any kind of records, whether it's an endorsement or just a, the signature at the, at the end of a lesson, all of that stuff is only official if it's signed off. Uh, and ForeFlight has a really cool feature too, where if you and your student both have ForeFlight, you can actually, the, the student can fill out the log and then uh, at request the the signature of the instructor and then so you know we don't even have to be right next to each other let's say we're in a rush and uh, we didn't have time to to do a debrief or something or maybe we forgot to do the digital log or, or whatever it might be you know you can still do it later because you can do essentially a push request of the instructor to fill it out so anyway it's it's a really great option i'm pretty sure log 10 pro probably has something similar uh, i'm not Sure, you know, in terms of percentages of how many people use Log10 Pro versus ForeFlight versus any other methods, uh, but that ForeFlight is just what I use, and it's it's what a lot of flight schools will use, and and uh, people who who just fly on their own recreationally, it's it's a great application to use. It's it's just it's really handy. It's a really good tool, and having that logbook is really great. But back to logging flight time, when you take that first flight. And, and all your subsequent flights and, until your first solo, all of that time will be logged as dual received. Uh, and this should be pretty self-explanatory, but, but dual received means that it's the time spent in the plane with a certified flight instructor. So all your lessons where a certified flight instructor is teaching you for the purposes of, of getting a certificate, a rating, or maybe an endorsement, or, or just going back for proficiency training, you will always log dual received with an instructor. You will also log airplane single engine land, assuming that that's the, the aircraft you're flying, uh, which 99% of, of student pilots will be beginning with, uh, and, and, and total time as well uh, as that dual received. If the lesson had some or all time spent at night uh, and or in the clouds, you'll, you'll also log some nighttime and, and actual instrument time respectively. For the most part, all flights will be spent in a local practice area, but if, if for some reason you need to go a bit farther uh, to a specific airport because maybe you know, your local airport is too busy and you need to go farther away, uh, or there's just you know, you're, it's too mountainous of a region, you need some good fields for, for ground reference maneuvers or whatever it might be, um, if you fly farther away from your airport uh, that, that you, you took off from and the straight line distance will be more uh, equal to or more than 50 nautical miles, you can actually log cross-country time for the portion of the flight that you had that straight line distance point A to point B with that, that 50 or, or more nautical mile straight line. And starting out from the beginning, you, you probably aren't really thinking about this cross-country time um, because you know, you're just starting out. You're, you're trying to figure out how to fly, how to fly the plane. But uh, you know, just try and pay attention uh, to, to the instructor's plan of action if that's in the lesson that you need to go somewhere. Because uh, there are some instructors out there, unfortunately, who will try and what we call milk you for your flight time, and specifically the cross-country flight time. So they might purposely say, yeah, we're going to fly here today because X, Y, and Z. And it might, it might be a hocus-pocus reason uh, because they're just trying to get cross-country time because they also need to log the cross-country time in order to get their airline minimums. Um, but, you know, I, I, I hope that you never have to encounter an instructor like that, but if you've discussed this with your instructor and you're okay with that going farther away, be sure to log that time too, because you can later use that for your airline minimums. And, you know, I, I like I said, I, I just, I would hate to see uh, an instructor do this without the student's knowledge. It's, it's, it's unfair, it's unprofessional, and and you know, just don't be afraid to call someone out on it. And if if they try to deny it when it's obvious, you know, try and work it out. And if all else fails, you know, sometimes you need to get a new instructor. Not everyone works together perfectly. 
uh, and it's it's not the end of the world if you need to get a, a new assignment, a new instructor. And, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work out, and that's okay. But but don't let someone take advantage of you for your training, uh, and use it for their own personal gain. I mean, a, a good instructor might be working towards their airline minimums. You know, that is their personal gain as well. But they should really care about the student and ensure that the requirements are met for that student without abusing the student's flight time. And, and that's what it means to be a good instructor, is that you, you are teaching the next generation of flight students. And that's, that's something that you know, I, I did not take lightly. I, I made sure that you know, what comes first is my student. For me, if I need to get more cross-country time for the airline minimums, I'm, I'm not going to force a student just to go on a cross-country when they don't actually need it for the lesson plan of the day. You know, you know go rent a plane if I need to. Uh, but, but, you know, hopefully you do not encounter an instructor like that, but just pay attention, you know, because early on you're, you're not really going to be thinking about these kind of things. Um, it, depending on the lesson, sometimes it can pass by pretty quickly. And, you know, all of a sudden it could be a three-hour lesson and you didn't even realize you were doing cross-country and, and the instructor might even not even tell you and they're logging cross-country time, but you're not. And it just becomes a kind of a sticky situation. So just just pay attention and, and you can just ask too. You know, the, ask your instructor what the plan of action is if it does involve going on cross-country because you will have cross-country requirements for the private pilot course, for the, uh, the commercial course, but you do not need to be doing cross-countries every single lesson. Once your instructor signs you off for your first solo, you get to fly the plane all by yourself. It's, it's the most exhilarating feeling ever when you start the engine and you taxi out and you realize, oh my gosh, my instructor is no longer sitting to my right. And at this point, even though you are a student pilot, you're, you're going towards that private pilot certificate, you're the only one on board the aircraft, and which means you are in command. Therefore, you can now log PIC, which stands for pilot in command time, for the portion of the flight that, that only you are on board. Sometimes what flight schools will do is, is and this is what, what I experienced, uh, you, you'll have uh, th that first solo split up into um, what we call a dual solo. So you, you'll have you'll go with your instructor and you'll do a couple warm up laps in the pattern with the instructor just just to you know make sure that you're all good and you get a feel for it and you're you're ready for the day. Uh, and then the instructor will hop out of the plane and then it's all you. Uh, and in this case, you since it all kind of happens pretty quickly, you're not going to log two separate entries even though you do shut the engine down, um, you're not going to log two different things in your logbook. So uh, for the portion that you fly by yourself, that will be logged as PIC. And for the portion that you are with an instructor, that will be dual received just like it was prior, uh, you know, before you soloed, and, and there'll be no PIC for that portion. Uh, so this is how I did it when I did my first solo and, and how um, when, when I sent off a couple students for their solo, I also did a, a dual solo where I you know, went out to a, a remote airport that wasn't too busy, did a couple warm-up laps with them, and then I hopped out of the plane, they went off, they did a few laps, and then they came back. So, you know, they, they logged um, you know, probably just under an hour of flight time with a few landings. Additionally to the, the PIC time, every logbook is going to have a, a PIC tab to, to fill in, whether that's the physical and or, or the, the digital copy as well. Uh, but I've, I've noticed some logbooks do not have this, but but be sure to log solo time in a separate column as well. Uh, it you know e Even if there's no column in that logbook, uh, usually there's a couple blank columns in the logbook, so just create a blank column and and, uh, and just note that on, on the digital log if, uh, if it doesn't happen. In my experience, I think most digital logs will actually take note of that. Uh, but you'll need this solo PIC time for the the private pilot checkride and I believe you need to reference it again for the commercial uh, checkride again. So uh, th these are important times to take note of and if you you know you note those early on you're not when, when it comes time for checkride you're not going to have to flip back through you know a bunch of pages of the logbook and add everything up and you know if you're frantically trying to add things up last minute that that could be uh, could lead to a chance of, of making a, an addition mistake when you're logging up when you're adding up all those logs. So what I would do is is note that solo time in a separate column, um, so that again at the end of course you've got it all there and it's it's easy to to take note of. Though so after you get your private pilot certificate, you pass that check guide and you're now a certified pilot. Uh, you know you're certified to operate an aircraft for, for recreational purposes. You know you can't do it for hire yet. 
uh, not until you're commercial pilot, but any time you fly from from at that point, uh, whether it's just by yourself, you're taking some friends up, or maybe you're just going with an instructor, you know, because you're working on your instrument rating or whatever. Uh, at this point, you're always going to log PIC time, because even if you do have an instructor on board, the instructor also logs PIC time because they are actually the PIC, the pilot in command for that flight. For you, as the maybe you're working on your instrument or or your uh, your commercial, or maybe you're just going up for a proficiency check with the instructor. You, because you are you are actively flying the aircraft, you are acting as PIC, and therefore you can log PIC time. And I know this, this sounds a little complicated to understand, uh, but if you're looking for some good old dry reading, um, the, what I'm referencing is is uh, 14 CFR. It's it's part 61.51, which is all about the logbooks. Uh, and so that's where you'll find uh, that kind of information of oh, okay, if you're an instructor, you can also log PIC time. Uh, so both the student and the instructor can log PIC time because other than that, you're you know you can't have two pilots in a single pilot certified aircraft logging PIC time. That just that doesn't work. With uh, with some small exceptions, I'll get to that in a little bit. In one of uh, my previous episodes, I'd, I'd talked about the hour requirements for the instrument and commercial uh, rating. So I'm not going to dive too deep uh, again because today is really about how we log the flight time. Uh, but but essentially, depending on on whether or not you're you're in a Part 141 school, which which has uh, a lot of cases will have reduced total hour agreements with the FAA because it, it has a, a specific curriculum, uh, or maybe you're just in a standard Part 61 flight school, you're still going to need to hit some key hour milestones to become instrument rated and and then commercially rated. So you need at least 50 PIC cross country time for the instrument course. Uh, before you take that check ride, and then for your commercial check ride, you're going to need at least 250 hours of total time. Uh, and again, that that total time uh, can account for your private, your instrument, and any recreational hours that you might have as well. Uh, and again, there there are some exceptions to those rules. If if you attend a Part 141 school where you know you're not going to need to do the 50 hour cross country for the instrument, and and you wouldn't need to have a total of 250 hours. So again, it depends on the flight school. A lot of those. Uh, part 141 schools is because of a college program where they have an exception to that rule and, and that's what I did too. So I think I actually got my commercial certificate at 100, I don't know, 70, 180 hours uh, and I certainly did not have 50 hours of cross-country time when I took my uh, instrument check ride. So, you know, there are some pros and cons to both. By doing a college program like I've talked in the past, that was more money, uh, but I got a college degree out of it and I didn't have to do as many flight hours. So, you yeah, know, there's, there's some pros and cons to both. Once you've completed your instrument rating and, and your commercial certificate, you're also going to eventually need a, a multi-add-on engine rating uh, in, in order to go to the airlines, that is. Uh, and at some flight schools, there, there might be an option to get your private multi-initial or, or maybe your commercial multi-initial before uh, you actually fly a single engine and, and then you do a single engine add-on rating later. Uh, but this is typically pretty rare due to the increased total cost of flight training. I mean, flying a multi-engine airplane, it's two engines, so that's twice as much fuel <laughs> as one engine. So it's, it's, it's more expensive, uh, and there's, there's more risks involved with multi-engine flying and aerodynamics, and so uh, the insurance rates for that tend to be up uh, you know, a little bit higher than it would be for, for single engines. So it's, it's more expensive to fly multi, so not a lot of people will do their private initial or, or multi-initial. But the main advantage to doing a, a multi-initial course is that you'll get plenty of multi-time. Uh, because once you get your total hours to be eligible to become an airline pilot, you're going to need at least 25 hours of multi-time. Uh, and it's actually, it's really 50 hours of multi-time, but once you're in airline training, uh, you can use no more than 25 hours of full motion simulator time at the airline. Uh, to bring it up to the 50. So so therefore, you actually only need 25 in the airplane of multi-time be before you go on uh, to, to become eligible to, to, to apply to an airline. But in, in many cases, a multi-engine add-on rating will, it might take you less than 25 hours. And so you might have to go rent uh, a multi-plane, which that can be complicated because again, being a low-time multi-engine pilot, it, good luck finding a, a a flight school or you know an, an FBO that will rent you a, a multiplane without having an instructor with you. Uh, so a lot of cases you'll have to go with an instructor to get up to those 25 hours. 
Uh, and that's where you know completing a multi-engine initial course has that advantage because you're definitely going to have more than 25 and probably more than 50. Uh, I lucked out, which I, I guess you could say is lucky or, or unlucky, uh, because I did log 27 hours to get my multi-engine rating. Uh, yeah, it's pretty average that it takes about anywhere from 20, I want to say 15 to 25 hours, somewhere in there anyway. Uh, so I, was, I guess I was on technically the higher end at 27 hours. Um, but because of that, I, I did not need to do any additional multi-engine flying in order to get those 25 hours. And your mileage will definitely vary. Uh, or I guess I should say hours, not mileage. Uh, it'll vary from pilot to pilot. You know, no two pilots are the same. No two pilots are going to have the exact same logbooks with the exact same flight time. You know, it, sometimes it takes you longer to figure stuff out, and that's what happened with me. You know, and just starting the the multiplane, it, it was challenging for me, and it just took a few more hours than other people, and that's okay. That's perfectly fine. Uh, did I spend a little more money? Yes, but it was necessary. I needed to get that rating done. And additionally, re remember how I said that after you have your private pilot certificate you can now always log PIC time well when you start flying multi that's not the case uh, at least not until you complete your check ride uh, because it is still an airplane that you're flying a multi-engine airplane but it's a different class from single engine so the, the difference you know if you did your your single engine private that's that's a, an airplane single engine land ASEL versus now you're getting your multi-engine engine, engine add-on that's that's an, still an airplane, but it's multi-engine land, so A-M-E-L. So it's a different class, even though it's the same category. So because it's a different class, those lessons with an instructor, you're actually only gonna log dual received, just like you were uh, as a student pilot again. So now that you've got at least your commercial single engine certificate and an instrument rating, uh, do you have to get your multi add-on with your own money and do it at a flight school? Eh, not necessarily. There are some options where you can choose to start using that, that commercial certificate that you have, your single engine rating, and, and work your way up to obtaining a, a company paid training course maybe uh, to upgrade you to multi. So there, there are some companies out there, they're kind of few and far between, but, but they do exist where they have um, a mix of planes, you know, a different fleet where they have some single engine planes and, and if you spend X amount of time with a company, you know, they, they might... Uh, pay for your training to to be able to fly their multi-engine uh, aircraft. So in that situation, you you might be able to to get your multi time paid for. However, in those instances, you might spend a little bit more time at that company, uh, just because you know if if they're gonna spend the money for your training, they're probably gonna want you to stay on board for a little longer, and so they might involve some contracts that you're gonna have to fill out. Uh, you know saying that I'm going to spend X amount of years here because you're paying for my multi, stuff like that. So that, that's just some things that you, you have to take into account. Um, but, you know, if, if you want to get that rating, that multi-engine done rating quickly, uh, I've heard of people just doing it in a few days, um, you can go out of, out of your pocket and, and just get the rating done. And, and that way, if the airlines are your goal or you do want to fly multi-engine airplanes eventually, you'll have all the necessary ratings that you need. And when it comes to building your flight time towards your airline minimums, uh, whether that's the 1500 or, or if it's a thousand, if you did a college program, there are two main options. Option one is, is become an instructor or option two is, is work for another company and, and use your commercial pilot privileges. Just be mindful and do your research when it comes to working for someone else. At this point, you are a commercial pilot and I mean, on your commercial check ride, you're going to be asked, you know, what your commercial privileges are, uh, but make sure you truly understand them. Even if you get it right in the check ride, you know, at this point you get signed off, you are a commercial pilot, uh, and that does not mean you now just get paid to fly. You have to be mindful of the type of operation that you're flying for. Uh, for example, without going too far in depth, uh, if, if it's someone's private plane, and they want to just hire you to, to fly them around for you know various business trips or something, that's perfectly fine. But if they want to bring some other people on the plane and then they will charge those people for the trip, even if it's just a single penny, technically that's now considered an air carrier type operation, like an air taxi, if you will. 
because now they're making money on an operation. Um, and even if they're technically not making money, they're, they're offsetting some of their expenses because other people are paying for it. So that's an air carrier type of operation. And that means that the company would, would be required to have an air carrier certificate. Uh, so if that's that's the kind of operation, you know, like an air taxi kind of deal, you know, verify that they do have that air carrier certificate. Otherwise, you know, it, that could be an illegal operation. So just be careful, you know, when you're when you're looking into some corporate, you know, uh, flying for rich people kind of thing. You know, if, if it's a gig like that, just just be careful. Do your research. Make sure you know what you're getting yourself into, because at the end of the day, you're a commercial pilot. Uh, and and some people who are in the business side of things who don't pay attention to the aviation regulations, uh, they might not understand that, uh, and they might ask you to do something, and you you have to know when to say no. You know, and, and if that comes down to getting up and leaving that job, you might just have to, because the last thing you want to do is is do something wrong, and have some legal action against you. And and you know the worst thing that could happen is is you know any kind of violations that would then jeopardize your certificates and ratings. You know, you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go anywhere near there. So just do your research, make sure whatever company you're working for is legit. And if they do make money on the operations, they got to have a, an air carrier certificate. Now, let's say you find a, a great company to work for, and maybe they fly, I don't know, Pilatus PC-12s, these awesome just awesome workhorse uh, turboprop planes. I mean, they, they can cruise into the flight levels well above 18,000 feet, uh, and then they can also land in like 2,000 feet or less. They're, they're just, they have this insane envelope of speed and landing capabilities. Uh, but the only thing is that they are certified by the FAA as a single pilot aircraft, and meaning that it only takes one operator to pilot the aircraft. But many companies will actually have two pilots on the plane. So the question is, can both pilots log the time? Well, yes and no. The only way that both pilots can log the flight time is if the operation is under part 135, which is, is uh, a part of the regulations regarding charter operations, and that the company also has an exemption uh, with the FAA that allows a second pilot, uh, you know, a first officer, to log second in command time. Uh, and since it's a charter operation and, and the company has uh, has different uh, specific operation specifications, you know the, the FAA might give this uh, exemption because you know they they might be going into complex airspace and it's just necessary for the operation to have two pilots operating the aircraft. Therefore, they're going to allow to have both pilots. You know, one pilot will be the captain logging PIC time, uh, and the other, the first officer logging uh, the SIC time. So if you get on board with a company like this, just, just make sure they have that exemption. Otherwise, you could be flying as a first officer, but legally you would not be allowed to log the time. And in, in some cases, though, the company will make no mention of logging that second-in-command time. So you know, I, I've known a couple people that have logged second-in-command time when they actually weren't supposed to because the company did not inform them, inform them that they did not have that exemption. So it's... Unfortunately, you know, those people kind of got blindsided, uh, thinking they were they were going to be able to log time, but they couldn't. Uh, and it's it's you know it's perfectly fine to work for a company without the exemption to log SIC time, but you know since you're not logging any of that time, you won't be able to log any time until you upgrade to captain. And you know who long who knows how long that could be. I mean, it probably would take maybe only six months to upgrade. Uh, but at that point. You know, maybe you've flown 200 hours that you can't log. That's 200 hours you wouldn't see in your logbook. You know, I mean, at least you'd be getting paid, but that's a lot of flight time that you'd be missing out on, you know, especially if you want to go to the airlines to, to get to those 1,500 magic hours of, of going to the airlines. Uh, and, and even if the company does have the exemption, remember that that's only for Part 135 uh, flying. So that's you know those charter operations. So let's say... Uh, maybe on one flight, the company just needs to reposition an empty aircraft. Uh, a reposition flight would fall under Part 91 rules. And if you're a first officer in that flight, you cannot actually log second in command time because that, that operation is not incidental to the Part 135 exemption that the company might normally fall under. So just be careful when you're doing this kind of flying. Any kind of reposition flights, only the captain, the, the PIC, is going to be logging that, that pilot in command time. 
So if you, if you find a company that operates aircraft that are certified for two pilots, then it doesn't matter at all because the aircraft itself needs two pilots to fly. So it doesn't matter if it's a part 135 or a part 91 operation because it needs two pilots. So whether you're in the right seat, the left seat, if you're captain or first officer, you're going to be logging time regardless of those flight rules because again, it's certified, uh, the aircraft is certified for two pilots to operate it. An interesting side note to keep in mind with today's demand for pilots, at the regionals, there's a high demand for captains. And you know, a big reason for this is with COVID and then a bunch of required retirements, it, it's created a lot of movement in the industry. And so at the regionals, we have felt that with captains leaving in bunches, you know, heading off for their dream airline. And this means that there's, there's a lot of captains uh, that we need to, to fill those seats for, for staffing. And if you become a, a, a captain at a Part 135 charter operation, I, a lot of these regionals are now making exceptions where normally you would need 1,000 hours of Part 121 time before you could upgrade to captain. But now if you have PIC time in Part 135 charter operations, that time will count towards those 1,000 hours you need to become a captain at a regional jet. I think uh, in most cases you still are going to need some time as a first officer, but I'm not actually sure. There's probably a lot of fine fine print that I haven't read into. But uh, it's just one thing that uh, kind of a cool thing you can keep in mind when moving on from a corporate or, or a charter operation. Uh, if, if you want to move on to the airlines, you, know, you, can, you can potentially use some of that PIC Part 135 time to count towards your upgrade time. With that being said, you should only upgrade when you feel ready. I mean, it's it's a huge responsibility to take on when you become a captain, and regardless of, of the operation, whether that's the airlines or a charter operation, I mean, being a captain, it's a lot of responsibility, and no one should feel rushed or, or forced into it, in my opinion. And that's why I, I totally disagree with the forced upgrades that some companies require for uh, you know, once once a first officer has a thousand hours, they're, they're forced to upgrade. Uh, and and when I say a thousand hours, you know, I'm talking about a thousand hours in in the jet, uh, so under the 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 Part 121 airline time on top of their their previous flight time. Uh, but it's it's just a different world we live in. I mean, we're we're having these staffing shortages, and so we really need captains. But because of that, you you'll have first officers who yeah they might not quite be ready to upgrade. Uh, and some probably shouldn't upgrade, uh, and many don't want to upgrade, but you're, they're going to upgrade anyway. <laughs> and a lot of these younger pilots will have, I don't know, just 2,500 total hours of flight time, uh, and they're an airline captain. I mean, even just 10 years ago, that would be completely unheard of. Uh, it used to take years and years of, of instructing or, or working in a small commercial operation, and then finally you'd go on to a regional airline, and then you'd spend another number of years there, uh, and, and then finally, you know, if you're lucky, you can move on to a, a major airline. But now, jeez, I mean, you can be a flight instructor for a year, go straight to a jet after that, you know, a regional jet, and then, you know, maybe spend a, a year or less and then boom, you're, you're on to a, your dream airline before you even reach age 30. I mean, there's a couple companies now where you can actually go straight from flight instructing to flying an Airbus. You can fly a Cessna for 1,000 hours, 1,500 hours, and then boom, you'll be flying an Airbus. It is just a different world we live in. It's, it's a golden age to be a pilot. It's definitely an interesting time, you know, because for the longest time, the number of pilots that we had with with lots of experience, you know, in terms of, of total years of experience, that is is lessening because now we have all these mandatory retirements. We had COVID that halted a lot of hiring for essentially a year and a half to two years. And so now all of a sudden you have a bunch of younger pilots like myself with less flight time who are entering the jet world. And so, you know, as, as an entire pilot group at, at all the airlines, it's just, it's an interesting time. We have a lot of people with less experience and still a lot of people with lots of experience. So it's, it's just, it's a, it's a wild time to, to be a pilot. Uh, so if you're looking to do this, it's definitely, uh, definitely a great time to do it. And, and I, I love the career, you know, it's, it's amazing. And all these, I'm sure you've heard on the news, the, these new contracts coming out for pay, it's, 
it's a fairly cushy job uh, and that can be a, a hard thing to come by in this day and age so it's a huge initial investment but it's a big return on investment but anyway so <laughs> that's a little bit of a side tangent but once you do make it to your first uh, job after you get those flight ratings uh, that, that are necessary for the airlines you know how do you log the time then you know before i talked about okay uh, as a student pilot, you're only logging dual received, then you get your private pilot certificate, and now you can start logging pilot and command. Um, but once you move on to a different job, you know, how is how are you logging the time then? Uh, it, it really depends on the job. You know, like I had mentioned before, with a, a part 135, as long as they have that FAA exemption, if it's a single uh, pilot certified aircraft, you know, as long as they have that exemption, you could be logging second in command time. Uh, so there's going to be a column in your logbook for, for second in command time, and so you'll be logging second in command total time and if applicable you'll log instrument and nighttime uh, and cross-country time and depending on the aircraft that you're flying i mean it, it could be something similar to what you flew back in flight training you know if it's got a hobs and attack meter uh you know you're, you're going to be using those to log your flight time uh, and then once you move on to a jet like what i fly right now um it's it's a little bit different. We don't exactly we well we certainly do not have a, a Hobbs or attack meter at least that we can read. You know I'm sure there's different indications that maintenance personnel can look at for the the time that is run on the engine, but up in the flight deck we we do not have a Hobbs or attack. So how do we log our flight time? What we use uh, is block time, which is essentially for for us it's essentially the the scheduled time from gate to gate. Uh, but block times, there's actually four different block times. You have block out, block off, block on, and block in. And so block out means that you're getting off the gate, which starts when you close the cabin doors and the parking brake is released. Block off is just, it, it uses weight on wheel switches to identify when the aircraft is in the air. And then the opposite of that, block on, is when the weight is back on the wheels on touchdown. And then finally, block in is just the reverse of before. So once we set the parking brake and the doors are open. Uh, this, this is probably similar to a lot of uh, charter companies that, that use uh, you know, jets or maybe even some turboprop aircraft as well. A lot of them will use these block times, uh, but, it, but it might vary from company to company. This is just the, what I know, um, but I'm sure different companies have different ways of, of how you would log your flight time, but it's all going to be fairly similar. Uh, so how we log that in our flight time uh, in terms of our logbooks is using the out and in times so you know essentially getting off the gate and, and getting to the gate um, in in the military they actually will use the off and on for logging flight time uh, but we will use the out and in which it when you think about it it's, it's pretty similar to starting the engine and then shutting the engine down in terms of using hobs or tack it's it's almost the same now we actually you know, we'll push off the gate and an engine may or may not be started 99% of the time it will not be started yet uh, but we have the APU running, so the aircraft is running, essentially, even though the, the main engine's not running, but the aircraft is running with the purpose of going on a flight. And so, you know, in terms of logging time, you know, going into Part 61 with pilot logbooks, you know, the, the purpose of logging flight time when the aircraft is under power with the purpose of going for a flight and then you do actually take off, you know, it, it makes sense that you can log it. So using block out time and then block in time makes perfect sense. So instead of reading nice decimals for your hobs and tack meters that you could you could figure out your flight time, the block times are always in timestamps, uh, specifically in Zulu time. So if your flight, for example, for if your flight blocks out, so again off the gate at 1500 Zulu, and then it blocks in at 1616 Zulu, you can kind of round that up to call that 1618 Zulu because then that is one hour and 18 minutes or 1.3. In fact, that's exactly how my four flight logbook will, will do it. It will, it will calculate it uh, based on what I punch in. So if I, if I put in the block times, the, the out and the in, it computes all of that and then it will actually round it to the nearest tenth of an hour for me. Uh, and, and this is another great reason to use a digital flight log because you can punch those numbers in, the, the, um, the, the block out and in times, and it will convert that to your, your decimal flight time. And so how I do this is after every flight, I just go to our data link page 
and that shows us our flight times. Again, it shows us all of our block. The block out, off, on, and in. Again, all I really care about is the out and the in in order to put into my logbook. I could also go to FlightAware or maybe the, the airline's flight times and, and then just find them there because the departure and arrival times that you will see on your ticket, for example, uh, or FlightAware, those are the exact same thing as the block out and the block in. You know, when you depart, when an aircraft departs, that means it's off the gate uh, and you're blocking out. And when it arrives, it's in the gate. So the only difference is that, uh, you know, whether it's FlightAware or, or the airline app or something like that, it's those, those times are in local time. So I'd have to convert it, which, you know, that's easy enough to do if you're staying in the same time zone all the time. But I've, I've just found that it's in my flow of once we complete the parking checklist and, you know, we open the, the flight deck door, I open up that page uh, and I've got my phone right there with ForeFlight and I just punch in the times right there. And that's just the easiest way for me to do it. Uh, and the nice thing too is I believe Log10 does this as well, but ForeFlight also accounts for when it gets dark. Uh, and so by punching in that correct Zulu time, you know, with the departure and destination airports, it can actually approximate when nighttime falls and when you can log the nighttime. So I, I don't even have to think about it. It just auto-populates. Uh, and I don't have to worry about guessing, you know, what exactly what point did it cross over? Um, because, you know, it's just, it's one less thing to worry about. You know, granted, nighttime logging becomes pretty much irrelevant when you're out the airlines. Uh, you know, in general aviation, we're, we're uh, very used to, to differentiating night and day flight time, specifically for our landings because you know it's most of our flying we do in the daytime right unless you have a job that, that's always flying at night in order to stay night current your 90 uh, or your three takeoffs and landings within 90 days has to be done at night uh, and so you need to be flying at nighttime but in the airlines since every leg involves flying an approach which even 90 percent of our visual approaches are always backed up with an instrument approach the the proficiency and type of flying that we're doing under part 121 of the regulations there's actually no longer a distinction between night and day landings they're all just landings uh, and so you know i i do differentiate uh, the the landings themselves you know whether it's a night or day landing and, and i do like how for flight will automatically tell me how much nighttime i have but at the end of the day it doesn't matter when you are building your flight time to get to the airlines it does matter make sure you are logging your nighttime because there are actually nighttime requirements. I believe it's 100 hours of nighttime. But one really cool thing you can do is 25 night landings can substitute 25 hours of nighttime. So let's say you have uh, only 75 hours of nighttime, but you have an additional 25 night landings. Those 25 night landings can substitute the rest of those 25 hours needed to reach 100 hours of nighttime. So that's that's one little cool thing you can do uh, in order to reach your airline minimums. I did a lot of nighttime flight instructing, so that didn't really matter. Uh, I think I had four times. I think I had like 400 night hours uh, when I reached the the thousand hours I needed to go to the airline. So it, it didn't it didn't matter for me. But you know, if you do all daytime flying uh, and you're struggling to get your nighttime, that that's just one thing you can do. So just make sure you are logging all of that nighttime and all of your night landings. But again, like I said, once you're in the airlines, yeah, you need to log approaches to, to keep track of your instrument currency. Uh, and you do need to have three takeoff and landings within the preceding 90 days to maintain your currency. If not, you'll, uh, you can actually, you know, the company could bring you to the full motion simulators and, uh, and you'll, do your landings, uh, takeoffs and landings there, which is actually pretty cool because you can use a, a full motion simulator to officially log landings, um, which is really nice. Without even flying the plane, you can stay current. Uh, but in terms of differentiating night and daytime, it doesn't matter because it's all so similar. Uh, and, and at first I thought, you know, this is kind of weird, you know, because your your depth perception, you know, the everything is a little bit different at nighttime. But when you're flying so many approaches, it's really not too different, uh, especially a lot of these airports we go into, you know, they have these high intensity approach light systems and they have touchdown zone lighting on most of these runways we land on. So it, even though it is nighttime, it's dark, we're still flying an approach at night. Even if it's a visual approach, we, we've got it backed up with an ILS or, or even an RNAV approach, a GPS approach. 
because, well, you know, you, you just for safety's sake, you want to stay on that glide path. So we're just flying approach after approach after approach. And so I think that's why, you know, in, in terms of proficiency at the airlines, that's why under Part 121, you know, legally, there's no distinction between day and night landings. But it's, it's just kind of interesting. Uh, again, like I said, I like to log both just to kind of see how many landings I'm doing uh, at nighttime versus daytime. But uh, anyway, you, you don't need to, to account for those. But just make sure you are logging all of your nighttime and night landings, you know, when you're when you're getting towards your airline minimums, because those will be very important. Uh, again, meeting all those hour requirements. So there you have it. That's an overview of of some of the key items about logging flight time and, and how to log it, both in general aviation and how we do it at an air carrier in the airlines. Some key takeaways are definitely have an electronic logbook from the beginning of your flight training that you fill out in tandem with your paper logbook and every single flight that you have with your instructor make sure that they also sign the digital log and give you all of those endorsements digitally as well that way you have a backup if the paper log gets lost or destroyed and and then it, you know you, you also have this nice uh, digital uh, presentation for when you go to an airline interview you, know, you can print all those logs out and it's just this beautiful digital presentation you know logbooks you do your darndest to keep it professional always use the same color ink if you're going to use blue use blue if you're going to use black use black don't change back and forth and don't use any color other than blue or black uh, because it just doesn't quite look as professional if you're using all kinds of colors uh, as fun as it would be, uh, you know, if, you, if you're not trying to go to the airlines or, or a professional career in aviation, well, have at it. You know, if you're just logging for fun, you do you with whatever colors you want to put in there. But that's my recommendation is, is definitely keep it in one color throughout the whole way. And the nice thing with a digital logbook, too, uh, is that, yes, it's a backup for your paper logs, but it also has its own backup feature where, like I said, you know, you could have it uh, across multiple devices but also usually it'll have a cloud feature so it's always backed up the second you you enter a new uh, log entry it, it'll be saved so even if that device crashes or it wipes clean or for whatever reason those logs will get saved you can access them on your computer or other devices additionally do your research when in the time comes to work as a commercial pilot be careful and fully understand how the company operates. And remember that if it's a single pilot certified airplane, but it's operated under part 135 charter operations, just ensure that they have that exception that allows you to log second in command time. And for all of those part 91 flights with a single pilot certified aircraft, you cannot log the time in the right seat. Only if you're in the left seat as a captain, PIC. And lastly, when it comes to flight schools, Find out how the flight school will bill their students. The last thing you want is to be taken advantage of for your money and for you to you know, maybe fall short and, and become set back and discouraged from progressing in your flight training just because you know the company is, is kind of raking you over the coals. I mean, it's, it's just like in any industry. There are, unfortunately, some shady operations out there. So I will reiterate, do your research. Even if it becomes a, a little inconvenient where maybe you need to move or commute farther to get to the, that flight school, in the end, it could really be worth it if you pick a school that really cares about the students and the safety of that school you know, far above the monetization. Because at the end of the day, there are risks involved with flight training and you want it to be a good experience. And you know, you're, you're gonna have your days, your setbacks, you're gonna reach your learning plateaus, uh, and you're gonna encounter instructors that you might not work with as well. But you know, it, it all starts with just doing your research and, and finding a school that works for you and doing it your way. Getting to your airline minimums your way and don't let anyone you know, influence you into some decision just because it seems good on the cover, you know, dig in, read the fine print. It's okay to ask questions. I would always tell my students, you know, if someone says, oh, I have a dumb question. No, no, no. The dumb question is the one that goes unasked. That's what I always say. You know, aviation, there's so much information out there when it comes to, you know, just learning everything, but also understanding how flight training works. There's so much information out there that just ask around. There are so many of us who are very willing to answer your questions. 
And I mean, that's that's one of the reasons I'm making this podcast. I'm trying to give information to people like you, the listener, in order to to hopefully make a more informed decision. You know, I'm not going to tell you you should go to this flight school or that flight school. I'm telling you, you should do your research and I'll answer your questions that you have to help you make that decision. But at the end of the day, it is your choice as to what flight school you're going to go to, you know, what ratings you decide to get, what airline you're going to go to, what job you want to get, you know, all this information, it's up for you to take in uh, and make your own decisions. Because within aviation, it's it's a tight-knit community, but there's a lot of jobs out there. You know, there's a lot of different paths you can take, and you need to follow your dream. You know, whether you want to go to the airlines, maybe you want to do cargo, military, stay in general aviation, go corporate, whatever it might be, at the end of the day, it's you, it's your decision, you're following your dream in aviation. So that's all I've got for this week's episode of Cleared for Takeoff. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back next week, and until then, as always, fly safe. (laughs) 